David and Goliath, the teenage Israelite shepherd boy who goes up against the nine-foot-tall Philistine warrior giant. It's a kind of, of duel in which one representative from each army fights on behalf of the entire army, winner take all, meaning the, the army whose champion loses is supposed to surrender to the victorious army. The king of Israel, Saul, he equips the shepherd boy with the king's own armor, his helmet of bronze, his coat of mail, his sword and shield. But those are not the weapons of a shepherd. David tries in vain to, to walk with all of that on, taking a few steps before he finally discards all of it in favor of his shepherd's staff, five stones, his pouch and sling. I suspect you know the rest of the story. I think that serves as a, a fitting illustration uh, to lead off our meditation this morning. Now understand, I'm not saying that this is precisely the point of that record in 1 Samuel 17, uh, just that that record serves as a, as a helpful illustration. The image of the shepherd boy stumbling around as he tries in vain to, to wield the weapons of a soldier rather than the weapons of a shepherd. Is it not akin to the, the church stumbling around as it tries in vain to wield the weapons of the world rather than the weapons of the servants of God. Turning to and trusting in politics, political power, or turning to acts of protest in the streets, turning to prestige and, and prominence in the culture, so-called relevance requiring one to be indistinguishable from the culture, turning to prosperity, to wealth, or turning to the power of the sword. After all, what in our day could possibly be more effective than politics, protest, prestige, prominence, prosperity, or the power of the sword? Surely not five stones in a sling, right? Well, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. You can find it very near the end of the Bible, specifically on page 233 in the second half of the Pew Bible. Uh, we read through verse 12 last week, but for the sake of context, I'm rewinding back to verse 11, and we'll be reading through verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let us pray. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. Make us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and cause us to delight to do your will. Bless the preaching of your word, 
the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as you'll recall from last week, uh, the preceding passage, verses 4 through 12, uh, is the point in the letter where Peter directly brings together the language of pilgrim and priest, from which we get the title for this series, Pilgrim Priests. You see the, the pilgrim language in verse 11, the language of sojourners and exiles. That being the third time in the letter that Peter has described Christians as exiles, foreigners, temporary residents, pilgrims on the earth. For this world is not our ultimate home. We have been set apart from it as we temporarily journey through it. We are pilgrims. But we are also priests. In verses 4 and 9, he calls the church a holy and royal priesthood. And not only that, Peter mixes his metaphors to describe every Christian as a, a living stone in the walls of God's new temple, the place in which God's presence supernaturally dwells. So much like the old covenant priests were, were called to serve in God's physical presence by offering physical sacrifices intended to help others draw physically near to God, well, every believer under the new covenant is called to serve in God's Spiritual presence, offering spiritual sacrifices intended to help others draw spiritually near to Him. At the end of that passage, verses 4 through 12, Peter began to explain what spiritual sacrifices we are supposed to be offering. With verse 9 and 10 noting our priestly responsibility to proclaim God's saving grace with our words. And in verses 11 and 12, noting our priestly responsibility to display God's transforming grace with our deeds. We proclaim God's saving grace with our words, and we display God's transforming grace with our deeds. All for the purpose of calling others out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That they, verse 12, may glorify God on the day of visitation. That is, that they may be saved and rejoice with us on the last day. That's the aim of our, our priestly service as God's pilgrim priests on the earth. And now, uh, the remainder of the letter, it just further fleshes out what it looks like to display God's glory in our daily lives, His transforming grace, beginning with the topic of civil obedience, submission to governing authorities. This, in verse 13, is the first of three consecutive passages addressing the broader topic of submission to earthly authorities, governing authorities being the first. At the beginning of each of these three consecutive passages in the ESV, we have the command to be subject. In the NIV and the CSB, it's translated submit. It's a compound word meaning put under authority. And the passive voice is here, it's place yourself under the authority of. In this case, place yourself under the authority of every human institution. You can see from the footnote, a more literal rendering of that phrase is every human creature. Place yourself under the authority of every human creature. And the, and the rest of the sentence clarifies which human creatures Peter has in mind, namely the emperor as supreme. So the human creature in the highest seat of authority, but also the emperor's governors. So human creatures in lower seats of authority. You see, there's, there's an undeniable emphasis here on even the highest earthly authority, the emperor of Rome, 
still being just another human creature. Despite the Roman emperors of that day claiming that they were more than human, claiming that they were gods. No, every earthly authority is just that, earthly, and thus human, not divine. And yet, the one authority above all authorities calls us to submit to these human creatures in authority. Why do we need to be told to do this? Think about that. Why does he begin here with our priestly service? Submit to governing authorities. Why do we need to be told to do this? Well, I think there are several reasons why we need this instruction. The first being our sinful proclivity to believe the serpent's lies. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. As the serpent led Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thus to claim for themselves the ability and the right to judge what is good and evil apart from God's decrees, the serpent said to them, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see, his lie was not merely that they would not die. That's part of the lie. There's more. His lie was that God was holding out on them, that God was exercising his authority over them to their harm, that the way to happiness was to throw off the shackles of that oppressive authority. And ever since that day, every person who has ever lived has been born with this sinful proclivity to believe the serpent's lie to see all forms of authority as tyranny, to see the exercise of authority as a form of tyrannical, oppressive subjugation, only designed to keep you down, to view submission to authority as as settling for less than what you deserve, seeing it as, as undignified, degrading, and shameful, to view submission as beneath you. But that's a lie. The call there in Genesis 1 and 2, the call to submit to God's authority, was not designed to bring humiliation to humanity, but to bring honor. For God created us in His own image. God commissioned us to be His kingly representatives on His earth, exercising His dominion over all things by extending the borders of His dwelling place to the ends of the earth. It's an honorable calling. But the lie that authority is tyranny And the lie that submission brings humiliation, that has seeped into our bloodstream. And so we must be commanded by God to submit to these authorities. That's the first reason that we need this instruction. The second reason that we need this instruction is the same reason that King Herod sought to murder Christ when he was a baby. It's the same reason that Christ was eventually executed as an insurrectionist against the state. It's the same reason that that communists and other dictatorial regimes today, and even pagan and Islamic regimes, they view Christianity as such a threat to them. It's because our allegiance is to an authority above that of the state. So it's understandable that we might mistakenly think that we should ignore or even seek to overthrow all human governing authorities as servants of the one true king seeking to establish his kingdom on the earth. It's understandable. And for the initial readers living in the first century, there was also the widespread belief of the Jews 
that when the long-promised Messiah came, that he would establish his messianic kingdom as a geopolitical nation-state in Israel. And while that's an understandable inference to make from the Old Testament, it's not a correct inference. Standing before the emperor's governor, Pontius Pilate, in response to the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So yes, to to receive Christ as Savior and Lord is to pledge allegiance to Him above all other authorities. But until He comes again, those lesser human authorities remain. For His kingdom is not of this world, just as His people are not of this world, but are pilgrims on the earth, sojourners and exiles. And thus we are still subject to human governments. We need to be instructed in this matter. Our submission, he says, is for the Lord's sake. How so? How is it for the Lord's sake? Well, for one, it's commanded. This is the will of God, he says, so obey. Show yourself to be a person who understands and submits to God's authority. That's the first reason it's for the Lord's sake. Because it's commanded. We show ourselves to be those who understand authority. Second, our submission is for the Lord's sake. Because God has designed civil governments for the good of humanity. Civil government is is essential to His design for human flourishing, established by Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's the God-given charter of every governing authority, to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. That is the standard against which every human ruler will be judged on the last day. And of course, God's the only one who defines defines what good and what evil is. But there is no definite knowledge of good and evil apart from His Word. And when governing authorities, when they fail in this charter to, to punish evil and to promote good, as defined by God, when they fail in that, people suffer. Just look at the state the major cities of our own nation for proof that people suffer when evil is not punished and good is not rewarded. But even so, by submitting to civil authorities, by submitting even to incompetent and immoral authorities, we as Christians honor God's design for this good gift. The second reason is for the Lord's sake. The third reason that our submission is for the Lord's sake is because it imitates the example of our Lord. It imitates the example of our Lord, who Himself submitted to wicked governing authorities, those of Israel and those of Rome, allowing Himself to be arrested, even knowing that it would lead to a horrific, unjust death, thereby putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people who spoke against him as an insurrectionist. For insurrectionists don't hand themselves over to death without a fight. But he did, in submission. Recall that scene there in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus handed himself over to the authorities. Remember what happened. Peter, he's writing this letter, Peter drew his sword, right? He cut off the ear of one of the priest's servants. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword into its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? John 18, 11. And now here in this letter, Peter, who had once drawn the sword, he's saying that, that we too must sheathe our worldly weapons in imitation of our Lord. Showing that, that just as he was not an insurrectionist, neither are we. For his kingdom is not of this world. This is part of how we do good and, and put to silence the ignorance of foolish people who wrongly speak against us as treasonous or as threats to the social order merely because of our uncompromising allegiance to a higher authority. We show that they are wrong by submitting to earthly authorities for the Lord's sake. And fourthly, finally, our submission is for the Lord's sake because it demonstrates that we are no longer living for the pleasures of this world. You see, as he talked about in chapter 1, with our hope fully set upon the eternal inheritance and the life to come. As pilgrims on the earth, we are free to lay down our rights in this life. We are free to entrust ourselves to God's sovereign will. As Peter says, verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as free. Freed from the serpent's lie that submission brings humiliation. Freed from the serpent's lie that those with authority are inherently superior to those under that authority. Freed from the enslaving power of sin. As free, pre as free people, Christians alone can submit to earthly authorities with our, held, our heads held high knowing that we are in fact children and servants of God. And all of this, it puts on display the transforming grace of the gospel that has set us free, such that our submission serves our mission. That's the main point of our entire passage today. Our submission to earthly authorities serves the mission given us by our heavenly authority because it displays the transforming grace of the gospel that we proclaim. But what about fill in the blank? How many times have you said that to yourself so far today? But what about this situation? But what about that situation? Aren't there exceptions to this call for submission? Well, of course there are exceptions, but, but notice that Peter mentions none of them here. Just as the Apostle Paul likewise mentions no exceptions in Romans 13 when he writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Therefore, one must be in subjection to the ruling authorities. Or in Titus chapter 3, where Paul tells Titus to remind the church Remind them to be submissive to rulers, to be submissive to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. No exceptions are given. Not because there aren't any exceptions, but because that should not be our first thought. 
To immediately jump to exceptions is to so blunt the pointedness of the command as to risk missing just how penetrating it really is. These two apostles, Peter and Paul, they wrote these three letters, 1 Peter, Romans, Titus, they wrote these three letters during the reign of Nero. Not only did they write these letters during his reign, according to ancient records, they were both executed under his reign as well, with Peter crucified and Paul beheaded. And while it appears that that first Peter was written before Nero blamed the Christians for the great fire of Rome in the middle of 64, and thus before Nero began to ramp up the persecution of the church there, it definitely sounds like some of that persecution under Nero was, was already taking place when Peter wrote this letter. Chapter 3, verse 14, Peter writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he writes, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. So my point is, if the commands of Romans 13 and and Titus 3 and and 1 Peter 2 to submit to authorities, if that applied to the wicked reign of Nero, then it applies to any wicked governments that we face. When we can obey, we must obey. When we can obey, we must obey even unjust rulers and even unjust laws. But, yes, we have to acknowledge there are times when we cannot obey. And that is because earthly authority is secondary. Only God's authority is ultimate. Peter himself modeled this for us. As he and the Apostle John, as they were hauled before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that had put Jesus to death, as they were hauled before the Sanhedrin, the authority in Israel, They were commanded by that authority, quote, to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 4.19. And then again, the next chapter, Acts chapter 5, they're before the Sanhedrin again, and, and Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And they were beaten severely for it. Of course, there's the example of the Hebrew midwives who refused to practice infanticide at the command of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1. There's the example of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to, to bow down to worship the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace in Daniel 3. The example of Daniel refusing to to stop bowing down to worship the one true God. He was thrown in the lion's den in Daniel 6. You see, when earthly authorities command us to sin, when they command us to do what God has forbidden that we do, or they command us to not do what God requires, we must disobey those earthly authorities out of obedience to our heavenly authority. Earthly authority is secondary. God's authority is ultimate. And that that 
disobedience to earthly authorities, it can include fleeing from those earthly authorities. As Joseph and Mary fled from King Herod with baby Jesus in Matthew 2. As Jesus at times fled from those seeking to arrest Him, like in John chapter 10. As Paul, the Apostle Paul at times fled from those seeking to arrest Him, like in Acts chapter 9. We can flee from those authorities. It can include that. Furthermore, our submission to earthly authorities does not preclude us from calling out their injustices, even calling out their personal sins, calling them to repentance. As John the Baptist called out the sins of Herod to his face in Matthew 14 and was beheaded. As Jesus identified Pilate's wrongful treatment of him to his face, calling it sin, John 19. As the Apostle Paul accused the high priest Ananias of being a, a whitewashed wall in Acts 23. As Nathan the prophet called out the sins of the king of Israel, King David, saying, you are the man, 2 Samuel chapter 12. As Daniel commanded Nebuchadnezzar to break off your sins in Daniel chapter 4. In the next chapter, Daniel 5, he commanded the same thing of another king, Belshazzar. And of course, as the prophets of God all called out the injustices of the kings of Israel. To be light in the world, to be the light of the world, it requires that we expose the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11. It requires that we call out injustice. Even when that injustice is not directly against us, it requires us to be a voice for the voiceless. So we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. So yes, there is a place for civil disobedience. Now, we must not take our cues from the protest culture around us in this regard. We must recognize that, that the weapons of our warfare are very different from those of the world. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And what are the weapons of our warfare that are not of the flesh? Well, Paul continues, verse 5, We destroy arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to obey Christ. That is, the weapons of our warfare are first and foremost the proclamation of the gospel. That's how we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God is through the proclamation of the gospel. And that's precisely where Peter began, right? Chapter 2, verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our first weapon is gospel proclamation proclaiming God's saving grace through words. And our second weapon is personal holiness, displaying God's transforming grace through our deeds, which includes submission to earthly authorities for the sake of our mission. Look again at the concluding verse of our passage, verse 17. It begins, Honor everyone. Honor everyone. All people deserve respect. All people are, are worthy of some degree of honor purely because of the worth of the one who made them, the one in whose image and likeness they were made. 
And what does that honor entail? What does it mean to honor everyone? Well, at the very least, it means not treating anyone or any group as inherently of, as less worth than anyone else or beyond God's grace. As Peter said in the opening verse of this chapter, it means putting away all malice, putting away all desire for and all delight in the harm of others, but instead desiring and seeking their good, calling them out of darkness, calling them into God's marvelous light. That's what it means to honor everyone. Seek their good. And secondly, he says, love the brotherhood. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. This love within the family of faith, that too is part of displaying God's transforming grace. As Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The light of the gospel, it often shines brightest in our self-sacrificial love for the family of faith. So honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and thirdly, fear God. Fear God. This, this is clearly being set in contrast to not fearing the emperor, right? As Peter says, fear God, but fourthly, merely honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. God alone is to be feared, which is to say that, that we are to be infinitely more concerned with pleasing our heavenly authority than we are with pleasing earthly authorities. To fear God is to trust and to obey Him above all others to trust and obey Him with a trust and obedience that flows from loving Him above all else. Loving Him with a love that dwarfs all other loves, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We trust and obey Him. Notice that the first and last verbs are the same here in this last sentence. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. It's not that we honor everyone in the exact same way as though they were the emperor. No, but this does serve to further emphasize that, that those who possess governing authority, they're not inherently any superior to anyone else. We honor everyone, and we honor the emperor. We do not submit to those who hold office um, because of who they are. We do not submit because of who holds the office. We submit to the office. And that's how we primarily honor the emperor. So in short, we're commanded... Love and honor creatures. Worship and serve the Creator. Love and honor creatures. Worship and serve the Creator. We worship God alone. To Him alone we pledge our ultimate allegiance. In Him alone we place our ultimate trust. Trusting in His ways. Trusting in the weapons that He has given us for the battle set before us. The weapons of proclamation and personal holiness. That's what Peter's focusing on here, proclamation and personal holiness. But as we saw from, from God's Word to those exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, there's another weapon in our arsenal, and that's prayer. Recall what Patrice read. God said to those exiles in Babylon, He said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on behalf of the city in which you are exiled. Now, Peter doesn't mention prayer here, but he does address prayer three times later in the letter. And notice that the Apostle Paul, he instructs the same weapon of prayer in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, First of all, I urge that supplications, that prayers, that intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people 
that prayers be made for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for governing authorities, he says. These are the weapons of our warfare. This is God's design for advancing His kingdom. God's design for building His church. Proclamation, personal holiness, and prayer. Not the power of the sword. Not prosperity. Not prestige and prominence in the culture. Not protest. Not politics. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be involved in politics at all. In our representative democracy, I think we should be involved to some degree. Christians probably should run for office. Christians should vote. Christians should speak out regarding what it means to punish evil and promote good. But it's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of trust. Taking up political engagement should not cause us to put down the weapons that God has prescribed for us the weapons He has endowed with divine power to destroy strongholds. Do not scoff at God's five stones in a sling. They are giant killers. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your 